On today's show, we're talking about justification by faith. It's going to be a good one, guys. Let's get into it. This is the Lost Mission Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My name is Don Van Zant, and this is the Lost Mission Podcast, where our goal is to help us as believers get back to our mission of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Wendell Phillips said this at a Massachusetts anti-slavery meeting in 1852, but its sentiment is valid today, not only in the realm of the political, but even more so in the realm of the spiritual. The Apostle Paul had risked his life to carry the gospel of God's grace to the regions beyond, and he was not willing for the enemy to rob him or his churches of their liberty in Christ. And it was this spiritual vigilance that led Paul into another dramatic encounter, this time with the Apostle Peter, also Barnabas, and some of the friends of James. And that's what we're talking about today on the show. But before we get into uh, the text, I think we need to establish a little bit of context, sort of before we can talk about what's going on. I think we need to kind of understand a little bit about what is going on here. So in the first video of this series, I made mention that the book of Galatians was likely written somewhere around 48 AD. And I also said that that would become important later on in the discussion. And well, we're at we're sort of at that time now when the dating of the book comes into play and it becomes important for us to understand when the book was written. In verse 18 through 24 of chapter 1. Now, we didn't cover all of chapter 1 in the first video. We did a short overview of the chapter. This is not intended to be an in-depth or a deep dive into the book of Galatians. We're going to sort of glaze over each chapter. We're not going verse by verse. Just because I feel like that with this sort of textual, topical type of content, it doesn't merit or, or necessarily need a verse-by-verse approach to, to the study. And I hope that makes, that makes sense to you as the viewer. But in the latter portion of the first chapter, uh, Paul speaks of a visit to Jerusalem. So that's the first visit that he speaks of. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he speaks of a second visit. And this second visit takes place sometime after the first visit, some 14 years or so later. Matter of fact, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, this second visit is of great importance and of great significance, but it seems like it's only sort of skimmed over in the book of Acts. I do not believe this is what Paul is referring to in Galatians is the same that Luke is referring to in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts with the Jerusalem council. So I don't think he's speaking of the council here. That meeting would actually take place probably a year, maybe two years after the writing of the book of Galatians. I don't believe that it happened yet. And, and if it had have happened, then it would have made um, the Galatians letter so much more important. Uh, but I don't think it's happened yet. Thus, that's why Paul, when he writes, there, there's no real mention of the Jerusalem council. But, but what are we talking about? Likely, when Paul says he went back up to Jerusalem 14 years later, he's referring to the account recorded in the book of Acts, Chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up 
foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every man, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Saul is Paul. So Agabus comes down, uh, or maybe goes up to Antioch, and there he prophesies of a famine that would occur. And this famine is historically recorded as having occurred during the days of Claudius. So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem to help with the relief, uh, to prepare for the coming famine that would occur during the days of Claudius. Paul mentions um, going up by, by revelation. This could possibly be in reference to the prophecy given by Agabus, but it seems as though from the wording of the text that likely he's not referring to the revelation given by Agabus, but rather by a revelation given to him by Christ that he must needs go up to um, or down to Jerusalem from Antioch. So it's, it's also at this point in the book that we are introduced to a very important, very special character in sort of the narrative of the second chapter of Galatians. This man's name is Titus. Why is Titus important? Titus is a Greek. He's a non-Jew, an uncircumcised Christian. Now, Titus would become very important aid for Paul in the future, and also, from what I understand, a very important part of the church in Corinth later on. But again, he is no Jew. Titus is a Greek. He was an uncircumcised former pagan Greek. And when Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem in likely around 47 AD, so prior to the writing of Galatians, obviously because it's recorded in Galatians, so it had to take place before, uh, he takes Barnabas with him. And side note here, Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in the entire New Testament. He's a small side character. He's referred to as the son of consolation. I love Barnabas. Maybe we'll do a video on him at some time. But he takes Barnabas when he goes to Jerusalem. He also takes Titus. All right, so let me give you three reasons why I believe chapter 2 is not speaking about the Jerusalem council in AD 50. Number one, Paul goes up by revelation as recorded in Galatians chapter 2. When you read Acts 15, Paul is actually summoned by the brethren um, in Jerusalem. So there's a, differenti- a differentiation there made as the reasoning why Paul goes up. Acts 15, like I said, makes no mention of Titus. Titus is not recorded as having been there in the Jerusalem council. It seems like because of the nature of the conversation that Titus would have been at least highlighted or at least mentioned. There's no mention of Titus in Acts 15. And likewise, on the flip side of that, in the book of Galatians, there's no mention of the Jerusalem council. Admittedly, the last two points are arguments from silence. I understand that. But they seem to be fairly loud arguments from silence. So three reasons why is the difference in the reasoning why Paul is called to Jerusalem in the first place. There's no mention of the Jerusalem council in Galatians, and there's no mention of Titus in Acts 15. So I I feel like that this is speaking of the meeting in Acts 11. For what it's worth, feel free to disagree. So when Paul goes up to Jerusalem to assist with relief, he brings Titus along for a very special reason. He's taking Titus to go and meet the brethren in Jerusalem. He does this as a sort of litmus test to see if the brethren would make any sort of spiritual demands on 
Titus. If they would refer back to their law and command that this uncircumcised uh, Greek become circumcised like the Jews are. He wants to see what they're going to do. And while he's there, there's no command for him to be circumcised. This man that is violating the law, these Jewish leaders do not demand that he follow the law. The Jerusalem brethren allow him to carry on acting outside of the law. This is huge. This validates Paul's later claim that justification is indeed by faith and not by works of the law. Now, there are false brethren in Jerusalem that try to stop Paul and demand that Titus be circumcised. There are a few that speak up, but Paul says these are false brethren. Uh, the core of brethren don't de- make these demands, but I love, I love what Paul does in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He makes record of it in the book of Galatians. He, he doesn't yield to these false brethren, <laughs> not even for a moment. This is what he records in, in Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet... Because of false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And let me just say this. Let me, let me, let me just say this for you, the viewers out there. That is exactly why I draw the hard lines that I do. Look, I've had a lot of conversations with um, those inside of the holiness movement, and I, I do draw some hard lines, and I receive a fair amount of backlash for the lines that I draw. Paul does not yield to legalism. Not even for a moment, Paul doesn't yield. And we as Christians must not yield to legalism, no matter how tempting it may be, especially within a group like the holiness people, there, that there is a large element of legalism that exists. And if you find yourself on the outside of that, and, and you're constantly being pressured just to give back in and to conform and be a part, and if you're being accused of being rebellious or whatever, and you know that you're not, I encourage you, don't give. Be as Paul was, don't yield, not even for a moment. Am I telling you to be rebellious? No. Am I telling you to be argumentative? No. Am I telling you to go around stirring up trouble, starting fights and arguments? Please, for the love of God, no. Do not do those things. That is foolish and sinful. What I'm telling you is do not yield the gospel. Stand firm on the gospel. And the gospel is a gospel of liberty, not of works or law justification. One thing I'll say in, in, in regards to myself is I don't really feel as though I even go as far as Paul does. Paul goes so far as to call these brethren themselves false, to say they are false brethren. I don't even go that far. I say the teachings are false, but the people are still Christian people. <laughs> um, so Paul, when, he, when he's in um, Jerusalem, he receives the right hand of fellowship from the brethren, from Peter and James and John. They... They affirm Paul and his work and his ministry. He heads to Antioch. While he's there, that's where the conflict ensues. While he's there, Peter comes up from Jerusalem to see the state of the church in Antioch. And the interesting thing about Peter is that while he's there, Peter sort of begins to live as one of the the Gentiles, one of the Greeks. He essentially lives it up. He goes and he lives and he and he acts as a Greek acts. 
Uh, he eats with the Gentiles for a time. Uh, then when the brethren come down from Jerusalem, he withdraws himself. He goes from eating with the Gentiles to withdrawing from the Gentiles. And he goes back to acting as a Jew. When this happens, when this happens, Paul is absolutely outraged. So what does Paul do? Paul confronts Peter to the face. He opposes him to the face. There's a prevailing mindset inside of the holiness movement, and I don't know why, but the prevailing mindset is this, that all conflict exists only because a person is rebellious and because they want to argue. <laughs> Honestly, if Paul were part of the holiness movement, he would have likely been forced into that, that group because Paul confronts Peter to the face. He opposes him to the face. I feel as though the way that the holiness movement is structured here now, today, that Paul would be looked at and would be cut off, would be reprimanded. He would possibly even be sort of blackballed, you know, in some sort of passive-aggressive way that, well, we're just not going to have Paul back anymore. Paul's done. But the fact is this. There is a time to confront false doctrine. There's a time for it. Not always. Not always. Let me reiterate that. Not always. We need to use wisdom. We need to pray for wisdom. Every fight that is presented to us isn't one that we need to just engage in for the sake of the fight or for the sake of the argument. For those of you that feel as though you might need to speak up, I'm going to be just blunt. Watch your mouth. <laughs> be careful what you say and how you say it. And you don't have to take every argument that's presented to you. Use wisdom. There is a time to confront false doctrine, but it's not every time. Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, Galatians for You, has this to say of the ensuing conflict between Peter and Paul at Galatia. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. It is a bit lengthy, but I think that it, that it sort of encapsulates so much of what's going on in this discussion between Peter and Paul, and it, and it shows what happens in the larger body of Christ in the evangelical church today and also within the holiness movement today. So let me read this excerpt, and then we'll make a comment about it. Peter's sin was basically the sin of nationalism. He insisted that Christians can't be really pleasing to God unless they become Jewish. But nationalism is just one form of legalism. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism always results in pride and fear psychologically and exclusion and strife socially. There are many examples today of similar sorts of exclusive social behavior based on a failure to understand and live out justification by faith. Here are just a few. One way is to be sectarian. Every Christian group or denomination necessarily has many distinctions of belief and practice that have less to do with the core gospel beliefs and more to do with specific convictions about ethical behavior or church policy. It is extremely easy to stress our distinctions in order to demonstrate to ourselves and others that our church is the superior or best one. Another way is to bring classist, nationalistic, or racist attitudes from the world into the church. We all know Christians who belong to classes, groups, or personality types that we have had previously 
uh, disdain in our lives outside the church. Working class Christians may have a distaste for Christians from wealthier or more socially refined backgrounds and vice versa. Christians from one political persuasion may be upset by the presence of those from the other end of the spectrum. Very talented Christians may feel unhappy that people they consider mediocre are treated as equal parts of their church. Socially polished Christians feel uncomfortable around believers who are uh, socially awkward or marginal, and vice versa. We may feel comfortable around people whose cultural emphases are different to ours, and we may respond to all as Peter did, in apparently very well-mannered ways. We politely sit by those people in church, uh, but we won't eat with them. We won't really become friends with them. We won't socialize with them, sharing our lives and homes and things with them. We will keep relationships formal and see them at official church meetings only. All this comes from not living in line with the gospel. Without the gospel, our hearts have to manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. But the gospel tells us we are all unclean without Christ and all clean in him. Lastly, the most subtle way to lapse into Peter's sin is simply to take our own preferences too seriously and endow with moral significance what is only cultural. For example, it's very hard for Christians from churches with emotional expressiveness and modern music not to feel superior to churches with emotional reserve and classical music, and vice versa. We cannot see that we are just different. We believe that our style and customs are spiritually better. This leads to all sort of divisions in the body of Christ. We see all three of these regularly inside the holiness movement. Especially, especially with regard to our legalism and standards. We are sectarian. We are. Uh, we not only believe that we are the best but we discourage involvement with other Christians outside of the holiness movement. We stress our distinctions as a way of, of demonstrating our own superiority. Let me illustrate. You ever heard the expression that, well, so-and-so claims to be a Christian, but they don't go to a holiness church. We encourage holiness associations, friendships, relationships, etc., we look down on those that no longer look like or identify with the movement, not with their profession of faith or their confession of faith in Christ, but those that don't associate within the movement. We attend holiness services, almost exclusively. We do not allow other denominations into our pulpits. We are sectarian. We feel as though other denominations are somehow dangerous. We're sectarian. We're nationalistic. We believe that American pride is almost spiritual. <laughs> and look, I love America, right? I, I am proud to be an American. I love this country. And I even enjoy going to the occasional patriotic service, say on the 4th of July, and we celebrate America, and we devote one special church service per year to our nation and to freedom, and we worship God and thank Him for uh, the privilege of living in this country. I'm all for that. However, I also believe that there are saved Democrats out there in the world. We're nationalistic. We take our own personal preference way too seriously. 
<laughs> I remember years ago, I heard secondhand, but I did hear about a pastor that was nervous about having certain types of music in his church because he believed that the music carried a, quote, Jason Crab spirit. Now this is this is a ri ridiculous illustration, but it highlights the way we take our own preferences way too seriously. This is an extreme view, but we must understand that much of what we emphasize has little to no basis in Scripture, yet we hold it on the same level and give it the same authority as the gospel. And Paul is rebuking this same sense of hypocrisy in Peter. But when I saw that their conduct, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see how he calls out the hypocrisy in Peter in that moment? Now, now, do notice this. Notice the difference here in Peter's conduct in Antioch and, and Paul's appeal when he writes to the Corinthians. Paul writes this in, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I be free from all, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, which one do we see in our churches today? Do we see people acting as Paul acted, saying, I become all things to all men? Or do we see acting as Peter that acts one way around a certain group and not another way around a different group so that he won't offend anyone? Certainly not many men living and serving for the sake of the gospel. I have rarely, if ever, heard a person say that they understand their liberty in Christ, that they get it but live a standard as a sacrifice in order to save men. Rarely, rarely, maybe a few times have I ever heard somebody say that, I know I understand my liberty in Christ, but I live this way that I might reach these people. But I have heard many say that they don't believe it, they don't think it's biblical, they understand liberty, but they live in a sense of fear. They're afraid what's going to happen to them if they buck the system. And that seems to be what Peter is doing in the book of Galatians. When he goes to Antioch, he lives like a Jew, but then when the brethren come back, he is fearful and afraid, and he acts as a hypocrite. And so that he could appease the brethren and make his preacher buddies happy, he goes and he lives like one of these guys. It's this fear that makes hypocrites like Peter. And so for many, myself included, I put myself into that group. Because I have been that exact person. I have been like Peter for many years, for a very long time. Um, I allowed this fear to cause me to live a hypocritical lifestyle as well. 
afraid to offend the establishment. So, much like Paul tells Peter, we cannot affirm non-holiness movement believers and truthfully say that non-standard believers are truly saved and then turn around and force our people to believe in and live a standard. It comes down to one or the other. If you believe the gospel and affirm the salvation of other men outside of the movement, then you cannot affirm uh, standards and force those onto your people, and if they don't believe and live the standard, they're somehow not saved, backsliding, or are leaving their salvation. It can't be both. It absolutely cannot be both. It creates an incredible contradiction and makes us, as believers, into hypocrites. And would you know that those outside the movement, they see it, they know it, they're aware of it, they see it happening all the time. So it can't be both. Either you don't believe others outside the movement are saved, or you don't believe all the standards. You can't believe both. It's impossible. We become guilty of forcing Gentiles to live like Jews when we force people to become law keepers or legalists. Chapter 2, verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the center of the conversation. It's unity. It is truth. It must be kept in mind and in view at all times that God only has one church. One true family of believers. Only one. Do we have denominations? Yes. Is God pleased with all the the denominations? I don't know. But we have to understand, God only has one people, and it's the church. The holiness people are not the exalted church. They're not the best church. The Baptist folks are not the exalted church. They're not the best church. The Methodists, the Charismatics, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Calvinists, the Arminians. God doesn't have all of these specific break-off groups. God has one church. And either we're a part of the church or we are not a part of the church. But what is the thing that, that causes us to be a part of the church or not a part of the church? It is not works of righteousness. It is not works of the law. It is simply justification by faith. That is it. That is what causes a person to either be saved or not saved. Works of the law do not save. They never have They never will. And I feel like that many of my holiness brethren would affirm that view, would affirm that perspective. They they say amen to that. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by faith. And that's the wonder of Christian liberty. And I'm thankful. I really am thankful that that so many affirm that view and affirm that, that perspective. But realize Paul is not saying this in terms of an isolated event. He is not saying by... Uh, we're, we're saved by justification as a one-time thing. The beautiful moment a person is regenerated and cleansed from sin, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ and becomes a new creature. Um, is this by faith alone? Obviously, yes. Absolutely, yes. And we all agree on that point. But listen to Paul's next words. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... 
we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He tells them once they are saved by faith, they are free to live by faith and not by the harsh restrictions of the law. So if Paul were to return back to law-keeping as a means of justification, he is saved and justified by faith, but then he needs to go back to the law in order to maintain that justification, he would become a transgressor. That's what he's telling us. Um, Through the law, he dies to the law. And that is a a passage of Scripture that I grappled with and I wrestled with while I was preparing this this lesson and tried to understand and... um, had to have conversations with my wife to talk this over and see what exactly does Paul mean when he says uh, that through the law, he died to the law. What Paul is saying here is that the believer is dead because of the law. Much in the same way he dies to the law through the death of Christ, we are crucified with Christ. His death was our death. And since his death was sufficient to satisfy the law, we now live by faith in him. Because the law couldn't save us. The law simply killed. The letter killed, right? The the letter was the thing that, that caused death. And if Paul were to go back to this thing that caused death, then he would be a transgressor. He knows he can't keep the law perfectly. There's no possible way he can. But there was one who did, Jesus Christ. He kept the law perfectly. And so he lives this life now in light of Christ, that Christ is actually living through him. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Through Christ, we die to the law. In Christ, we are raised to live in liberty and in freedom from the law. You may belong to another. The the another is Christ, speaking of the law. You don't have to live to the law. You live to Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead. But what does all of this mean, though? What does it mean to live by faith and not under law? Does it mean that we can go and murder (laughs) because we're not under the law? Does it mean, well, I'm justified by faith, so now I can just go out and kill somebody if I want to? No. (laughs) No, it doesn't mean that. What about passages like Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5? Can we cross-dress and live a transgender lifestyle? No. Paul is not promoting lawlessness here. Rather, he is promoting faith. He's combating a legalistic approach to the law. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whatever or whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
To accept salvation by faith is to understand cross-dressing or not cross-dressing uh, does not affect salvation in any way. That's not the thing that saves us. It's not the thing that keeps us saved. This portion of the law can only serve to do one thing, to expose sin, to expose the sinful, God-hating heart of man. So if a person dresses as the opposite gender, does that make them saved or not? No. If a person never dresses as the opposite gender, does that make them saved or not? No. What is the thing that saves a person? It is faith. Faith in Christ. So, a believer, a true convert, comes to this verse, and they're, they're, they're faced with a dilemma. What do I do? What do I do with this verse? First of all, they know they don't cross-dress. But I, I don't do it. I don't cross-dress because, not because I fear losing my salvation. That would be legalism. I don't live according to the law out of fear. That's legalism. I don't cross-dress because I live by faith in God. So my faith in God, my bearing fruit, Christ living through me, says I don't cross-dress because it's the glory of God in me. But what's the legalistic view of this passage? What would we go to Deuteronomy 22.5 and look at it, and how would legalism apply to it? The legalistic view of this passage is that it is a sin for a woman to wear a pair of pants. Let me just reiterate that. Again, the legalistic view of Deuteronomy 22.5 is to tell a woman that it is a sin for her to wear a pair of pants and to lay stipulations of fear over onto her if she feels as though she can or could or should or wants to wear a pair of pants. That is legalism, and it is sinful, and it is wrong. And anybody that teaches that is teaching Scripture as a perversion of the Word of God. And my challenge to the ministry is stop this now. This is what Paul is speaking of when he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, for no reason, to push these false views of Scripture, bad interpretation of Old Testament passages, is to nullify God's grace and view righteousness as through the law, thus making the death of Christ for no reason. If it were about wearing pants or not wearing pants, or cross-dressing or not cross-dressing, or murdering or not murdering, or any Old Testament law, then what have we done? We've left Christ behind and said that what Jesus did doesn't matter, and it wasn't sufficient. Who cares? Because I need to keep these laws. When Jesus says, I fulfilled the law, live by faith in me, this view bypasses Christ and makes for self-salvation. And this is why I say, and I will have to reiterate this, that there are no holiness standards. There is only the gospel. Only salvation by grace through faith. There are no holiness standards. Quick comment on standards. What is a standard? A standard is a common, a level of quality. Uh, the, the, the standard of anything is the normal or the average of how something should work. That's a standard. If you ever worked as a mechanic, uh, you know what a standard is. When you pick up a half-inch SAE wrench, then you know that that half-inch wrench will turn a half-inch nut or bolt because it's a standard. They're all standardized that they match and that they work um, together. So in the holiness movement, we have a little thing that we call holiness standards. 
If you've been around the holiness movement for any period of time, then you have heard about the standards. You know what they are. The problem is that they're not standardized. That the half-inch wrench in one part of the country doesn't fit the half-inch bolt in the other part of the country. They're not standardized. They differ from church to church, from region to region, from state to state, and even from person to person a lot of the time. Some churches allow wedding bands. Some don't. Some churches allow their congregations to eat out on Sundays, to go to a restaurant. Some don't. Some allow facial hair. Some don't. It used to be that some allowed short sleeves and some did not. Well, it's 2022. That rule seems to be pretty much gone and out the window. But again, that proves my point that it's not a standardized thing because it's changed. The point is this. There are no standards. There are just varying degrees of opinion about frivolous things that vary from person to person or church to church or preacher to preacher or pastor to pastor. There are no holiness standards. And none of these issues are gospel issues. None. We agree on the gospel. We agree on Christ. We agree on salvation by grace through faith. So are there holiness standards? No, because they are not standardized. Are they biblical? No. Because they are not, there, there's little to no scriptural backing for any of these standards. There may be some twisting and turning of scriptures here and there to make it fit a narrative that we want to push, but are there holiness standards in the Bible? No. Are they gospel? No. We've heard them sometimes referred to as, quote, heaven and hell issues. You may have been in a testimony service or heard a Sunday school lesson or a sermon where the preacher made a comment. Now, I don't believe this is a heaven or hell issue, to which we quickly say, no, they're not, because it's usually used um, in the negative. I don't believe this is a heaven or hell issue. What we should say is, are they gospel? So when your preacher gets up or the next preacher gets up and says, this, is this a heaven or hell issue? What he should say, now, is this the gospel? No, it's not. We know they're not. Yet, we allow them to be preached, taught, and believed all the while we know that they are not the gospel. If you remember back to chapter 1, Paul makes it abundantly clear. If anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. What are we to preach? The gospel. What are we to teach? The gospel. What are we to live? The gospel. If it's not the gospel, leave it alone. It has no place in our lives. In this difficult but beautiful chapter, Paul drives home the point of justification by faith. And that's my goal in this, in this video, in this podcast as well, is to drive the point of justification by faith. Faith saves. Faith keeps us saved. Christ saves. Christ keeps us saved. There's only one gospel. I encourage us to live it in our outward expressions of holiness in our daily lives, live by faith. Do them by faith. Not by works righteousness. Not by works righteousness. We'll get into more of that later. 
we'll get into discussions surrounding the works of the flesh and what those are. And for those of you that are writing me off right now, and first of all, if you made it this far in the video, thank you. But for those of you that are writing me off right now saying that he's saying you can live any way you want, I'm not saying that. I'm not. And we'll find out once we get later on into the book. But for now, the point is this. We are justified by faith in Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that counts. That's the only thing that matters. How are we saved? Justification through Christ. Justification by faith. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We must be vigilant for this idea of liberty and not for bondage and not for holding our people down, but to understand our freedom in Christ. Guys, that's going to do it for this one. Grace, peace. I'll catch you next time. Thank you.